Alright, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which we did not finish last week. We're going to pick up where we left off, but I need to remind you that 1 Corinthians chapter 7, often called the marriage chapter, is not about marriage. Nor is it about divorce. Nor is it about being single or maintaining virginity. Nor is 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about remarriage. That's not what it is here for. Oftentimes we can take passages of Scripture and we begin to assign them doctrinal positions. And there is, obviously, there's all kinds of doctrine. Doctrine is simply teaching and there's all kinds of teaching of the Word of of God that is in the Bible. It is His Word, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation. But this chapter, I don't believe, was ever intended to be handed down so that we could take positions on different perspectives, whether it be, what do you believe about divorce and remarriage? Well, that's not why the chapter was written. Now, Paul is answering questions, questions from the church at Corinth, several supercilious questions. Questions that are a bit nose-in-the-air as they send them back to Paul. The questions themselves reveal that these folks think they got a little bit of wisdom under their wing, and they're using that. They are self-informed. They are self-impressed. Spiritually sophisticated. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, now begins taking their sophistication apart. He begins to unravel their attitudes. And I was thinking about that as I was studying that that is what God's Word does. It unravels our opinions. It so often takes apart our jerry-rigged opinions in favor of absolute and true, uh, sound truth. You know, we come along and we, and we have all these assumptions and all of these things, that much of which we draw out of our upbringing, whether it was churched or not. Traditions and ideas and thoughts and assumptions. And then we start to get into Bible study. And if we are truly open to the Word of God, He begins to unravel all of that mess that we have built up over the years. And jerry-rigged is the best word I can come up with for it, because that's what it's like. My opinions are like jerry-rigging a tower. It's a house of cards. And I am so thankful that the truth of His Word takes it down, and then begins to rebuild on the foundation, which is Jesus. A structure that is kingdom-worthy. And that lasts and that stands. You all know the verse, Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And that's what we're dealing with here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We are dealing with the word and the heart. Now, a quick review of where we were last week, because we gave five, I think, five roughly uh, different points, kind of outlining. We're going to just add two more tonight to finish out the chapter. But so we can take a running start and remember where we went, the flow of Paul's answer to the questions given by the church at Corinth can be easily tracked. I shared this last week, it's that Greek phrase, peri-day. And peri-day, which means now concerning. We already saw it back in verse 1 of chapter 7, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Well, that's what they wrote. Now concerning that proposition, Paul begins to give answer. 
We'll see it again in verse 25 tonight, which is where we're going to pick up in just a moment. We'll see it again in chapter 8, verse 1, probably next week. And then chapter 12, verse 1, in a few weeks. And then chapter 16, verse 1, he keeps saying, A peri day, now concerning... And then he begins to answer another question sent to him in letter form from the church at Corinth. So we began unpacking this first answer to the first question last week. It's interesting that the first answer follows Paul's call to sexual purity. And in fact, I think some translators have been confused by it because Paul says flee immorality back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He talks about sexual immorality and fleeing from it that every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 6.18. Right on the heels of that, he comes to the first question, and he says now concerning the things about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Well, following a discussion on sexual immorality, you might assume then, well, so that's Paul's answer. Just don't touch women, guys. And we're good to go. Problem is, we're not. (laughs) It doesn't work like that. It's not that easy. But what Paul begins to discuss now, as he opens up chapter 7, is he begins by addressing both sex and celibacy. Specifically in marriage, because you may recall that the church at Corinth, someone there was propagating teaching that said, even if you're married, you need to be celibate. Because sex is just immoral. Even in a marriage, you can't do it. So stop. Can you imagine married bros? I'm not going to get into that tonight. But he began by talking about what I called our unselfish duty in a marriage. Our conjugal obligation. Why is it an obligation? Well, after discussing sexual immorality, Paul comes right around and says, Look, you want to guard against sexual immorality, pornea, in your marriage? Then wives, give your bodies to your husband, and husbands, give your bodies to your wives, and fulfill each other in your marriage, so that you are not drawn and lured and tempted outside of that. Be it through adultery, or pornography, or any number of other sexual immoralities that could lure us to look outside of our marriages. Paul says, don't do that. There is an unselfish duty... That comes with marriage. And like it or not, if you said I do, you must. (laughs) This obligation, and I said this last week, it seals and secures a husband and wife. But what's fascinating about sexual immorality is that outside of marriage, sexual immorality does the exact opposite. It tears up the heart. In a marriage, it draws together, it binds together, it deepens intimacy. Outside of a marriage, it rips apart. Which is why Paul is so firm on the teaching of marriage as being the godly design. So, unselfish duty, that was the first one, the first, verse, the first six verses he talks about that. Verses 7 through 9 goes on to talk about unmarried discipline. Where Paul talks to singles in all categories, virgins, divorced, widows, if you are single, he says, I wish that you were all as I myself am. Well, how's that, Paul? Celibate. I wish that you were all single. He would even say that to married people. I wish you were single like me. Now, because you're married, don't go get unmarried. But I wish you were the way I am. And that is unattached. And he talks about this this discipline. Number three, we talked about unbroken dedication. 
Because Paul turns his gaze to marriage in verses 10 and 11, and he tells husbands and wives that your dedication, your covenant needs to be unbroken. Nothing new there as far as God is concerned. Unbroken dedication in marriage. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, Take heed then to your spirit, the Lord said, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord God of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God hates divorce. But nowhere in the Scriptures does it say He hates the divorced. Nowhere in the Scriptures does it say that once a person is divorced, they, ne- they are now in the everlasting state of divorce and are abhorred by God. It does not say that. God hates divorce itself. And I would venture to guess that every person who's ever gone through divorce probably hates divorce. No one said, hey, that was great. That was just best season of my life. So if if we have issues with divorce, if we hate divorce, is it any surprise that God Himself does so as well? Now I remind you, we are called to live the balance of grace and truth. It's one of the biggest challenges to Christians, especially in this culture today, because there tends to be a swing one way or the other. All truth and no grace. Or all grace and very little truth. And Jesus Christ is both. And He's not some of both. He is all of both. He is not most of the truth and a lot of grace. He is all grace and all truth. And that's how as followers of Jesus we are called to live. So we need to have the grace to be gentle and loving to speak the truth in love. But we have to have the truth so that we have something to stand on. So we know what is right, what is true, what is godly. And then we pursue that. And we do so knowing that there's not a single one of us in here who's got the truth down. We just don't. But we pursue truth by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So, for the married, what Paul would say is, if you're married, stay that way. Fight for it. Stick it out. Fight for the unbroken dedication of your original marital covenant. But it's hard, Pastor Rick. I get it. It's difficult. He's not, or she is... Fight for it. I mean, to your last breath. Fight for it. To the married. Now, for the divorced, for the single, for the remarried, seek to honor God now. Stop looking back. Christians spend way too much time looking back. But what about what I did here? And it's God, how's He going to deal with this here? And all that there. And it's like, no, we're looking ahead. Right? We press on. We look forward. And the grace of God allows us to do that. Don't look behind you. That mess is over with. Go forward. So whatever your state is, and and Paul will talk about this, go forward in the Lord. Now, for those who are married to an unbeliever, Paul addresses that issue. In what I call, number four, unbelieving deliverance. Unbelieving deliverance. That's verses 12 through 16. And we talked about this, that the best thing a believer in Jesus Christ can do who has an unbelieving spouse is stay in the marriage and be Jesus to your spouse. Don't seek to get out. Stay put 
And be Jesus to your husband. Be Jesus to your wife. Love them the way Christ loved you. Because who knows, that unbelieving spouse might experience unbelieving deliverance and become a follower of Jesus as well. Staying put. There's another one I would add to this list, and it's number five. I would call it undermining discontent. Undermining discontent. Verses 17 through 24, and we're going to really come back and dig into those verses again on Sunday. But undermining discontent. How do we undermine discontent in our life? By staying put. By finding contentment, not in the other side of the fence, but finding contentment in Jesus Christ right where we are. Stay put. Stay put with the unbelieving spouse and show them Jesus. Stay put in the position that you are in. Paul says the condition that you come to Jesus in, just stay there. Be content there. If you're a slave, okay. The moment you come to Christ, you're free anyway. If you're free, the moment you come to Christ, you're a slave of Jesus anyway. So just stay where you are. Trust Him and be content. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians will use uh, their faith as an excuse excuse for escape. Well, I believe and and she doesn't, so i got to get out. Not necessarily. In fact, Paul would say that's probably not the best move. Stay put. See if you might save her. The only escape, mark this, the only escape that we are called to as followers of Jesus Christ is the rapture of the church. That's the great escape. That's the one. Other than that, we're not called to escape. We're called to stay put in the name of Jesus and let Him work His will. Jesus said in Luke 21.36, Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And that is the rapture. That is that moment that He calls us out and we do escape all that's going on, but because He has called us and He has set that perfect time for our escape. Well, undermining discontent. We'll talk more about that on Sunday, but that brings us to where we left off. Verse 25. Now concerning Perry Day, now concerning virgins. Parthenos. Parthenos. In the Greek, it's an important word to acknowledge a virgin. Parthenos. The Greek word is very specific. It is a woman who has never had sexual intercourse. Just so we're clear, that's a Parthenos in the Greek language. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The prophet declared by the Lord, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. Well, that great prophecy of the birth of Jesus, the virgin birth of His mother Mary who was a virgin at the time. Now, you have probably heard it. Some argue against the virgin birth of Jesus. They say that's just ridiculous. How can a virgin give birth? How is that? Mary asked the same question when she found out it was going to be her. How is this possible since I am a virgin? Note this, my friends. The reason why people argue the point is in Isaiah 7.14, the word for virgin, Alma, in the Hebrew, can also mean maiden or of marriageable age. So they say, well, so it's not necessarily a virgin. Could have just been a young maiden old enough to get married. Well, here's the thing. In Hebrew culture, a Hebrew maiden had to be a virgin or she was not marriageable. 
So it's pretty much assumed. Yeah, but you can use that word Alma to just mean a young woman. Okay, perhaps. But Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 says, Behold the virgin, quoting Isaiah 7.14, Behold the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And the word that Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uses for virgin is parthenos, which is the Greek word which only means a woman who has not had sexual intercourse. So Matthew obviously understood that the sign that Isaiah prophesied about the virgin was a miracle. Here's your sign. (laughs) The Gospel writers all fully understood that virgin in the Hebrew Scriptures, the virgin who would bear a child, was a virgin. Alma in the Hebrew is Parthenos in the Greek, and it's this woman who had not been with a man. Luke chapter 1 verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? I am a Parthenos. I've never been with a man. And the angel answered and said to her, Here's how it be. Now I added that part. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Which is why Jesus is not the Son of Mary, or the Son of Joseph, or the Son of... Oops! Son of God. By the power of the Holy Spirit of a human virgin. Now, concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord. And you could almost see the virgins in Corinth going, (laughs) Good. But I give an opinion. Thanks, Paul. I give an opinion as one who, by the mercy of the Lord, is trustworthy. Okay? I give an opinion... As one who is worthy of being, or who is trustworthy. Paul says, okay, I'm not going to give you something direct from God. I'm going to add some of my thinking here. This is interesting. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul gives more opinions in this one chapter than in all the rest of his letters combined. You need to note that. There are people who who say Paul is too opinionated. And it's because of this chapter. He says things like, in verse 6, I say this by way of concession, not of command. So there's clearly an opinion there. Verse 8 of the chapter, he said, I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them, even as they remain, if they remain even as I am. That's a good idea. That's an opinion Paul gives. Verse 25 and 26, I give an opinion, he says... And then in verse 26, he'll go on to say, I think then that this is good. This is a good thing. This is what I think Paul is now sharing. Opinions. And so because of that, some tried to trash all of Paul's letters, saying he was just an opinionated rabbi, and why do we need to listen to Paul? My friends, first of all, understand that opinion is okay in the church. You can have an opinion. And if that opinion especially is informed by Scripture, all the better. Note that Paul does not disagree with the opinion of the Corinthians that a man should not touch a woman. He just clarifies what that actually means or how that should actually play out. But he does give opinions. Listen, if you want to have an opinion on any subject, fine, have an opinion. Just secure it by the Word of God. That's the way to do it. I give a lot of opinions. You all know that. 
But I try to avoid saying my opinion is biblical truth. Try to make that distinction. From time to time I'll say, look, this is what I think. It's not necessarily what Scripture says, but based on my reading and my understanding, here's what I think. That's my opinion. Probably right, but it's still just my opinion. And we may disagree on things because we have different opinions, even about what sometimes the Scripture says, which is why we've got to learn how to delineate between personal opinion and doctrine. Well, that's just your opinion. Uh, Not if it's biblically sound. Not if it is scripturally stated. Now, Paul does both. Paul gives opinion, a lot, again, in this single chapter. And he gives doctrine. And it's obvious that Paul knows how to navigate the two. And I find it interesting in Paul's letter, specifically here, that he does call out. Now, I don't have a teaching from the Lord on this, but I have my own opinion. And I'm going to give it to you. And he's very clear so that they don't feel like they're being bound to what God is requiring. Paul is able to navigate. And I think it's a great example for us. He's able to navigate his personal opinions and views with Scripture. But you also need to know this. Paul's opinions are biblically grounded. Which is why he says... I give an opinion as one who, by the mercy of the Lord, is trustworthy. So this is a good opinion. I say tongue-in-cheek often, as I just did a moment ago. Now, I'm probably right, but... And we all get a laugh out of it. I don't know why you're laughing when I say that. But you know what? I'm not going to give you an opinion if I don't have some biblical basis for it. And yet, I still need to call out to you, now, this is my opinion, so don't go walking off saying, well, that's what God told us. No, that's what Rick said. But if it's not based in and grounded in Scripture, it's probably not an opinion really worth having, to be honest. Paul gives opinions, but his opinions are solid. In fact, in Hebrews 13, verse 7, the Bible reads, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Imitate Paul. Paul says, hey, if you're single, it's good to stay that way. Some can. Some can. But you can follow Paul in that if you feel so led by the Lord. So here he says to unmarried virgins, verse 26, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. (laughs) Here's his opinion. Hey, you can get married, and it's fine. You're going to have trouble with a capital T. (laughs) That rhymes with P, and that stands for pool. Stands for pool. You're, You're going to have problems that if you don't get married, you will not have. And I'm treading on eggshells here with my wife in the room. But it's true. It's true that if you enter into marriage, you are buying for yourself problems that you would not otherwise have. Paul's absolutely right about that. Is is Paul just a misogamist? This guy a marriage hater? What's Paul's problem? Oh, he's single, so we all got to be like him? No, listen, I think Paul was married, as I mentioned last week. And his wife either left him when he came to Christ... Or died at some point. 
Why do you think that? Well, he was a rabbi. And the Jews held marriage in high esteem. And if you were a rabbi and you weren't married, mm, in fact, Jesus was a rabbi who wasn't married. That was part of the problem, I believe, that the Pharisees have with them. I said, I believe that's my opinion. <laughs> Paul also was probably a member of the Sanhedrin, voting with them for, for uh, stoning Stephen. And so by casting his vote, by being a rabbi, also, once you hit the age of 20 in, in Israel among the Jewish people, if you're 20 years old and you're a man and you're not married, it's a disgrace in Israel in those days. So the likelihood of Paul not being married is very slim. He probably was at some point. Not now. One way or another, he had lost a wife and from that point on remained single and celibate the rest of his life. And he says, I think that if you are without a mate, you ought to be like me. I think it's the best way. And he makes a case for it, some of which we will see in just a few minutes. He's not a marriage hater. In fact, he is biblically grounded. Proverbs 21, verse 9. Repeated in Proverbs 25, verse 24. It is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. This is Bible, my friends. Proverbs 21, 19. It is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. Amen. (laughs) Proverbs 27.15 A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. Drip, drip, drip. (laughs) Well, that's just wrong. Hey, Solomon wrote this and the man had experience. 700 wives, 300 concubines. He knew what he was talking about. Solomon of all men. Man, talk about living on a corner of a roof in a desert land with a constant dripping. (laughs) If you marry, Paul says, you're going to have trouble and I want to spare you. By the way, guys, we don't get off scot-free. Proverbs 26.21 Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. Sisters, say, thank you. All right, there we go. So so it's all there. We're all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. There's something else, by the way, very unique. In all of Paul's teaching to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he talks to men and women equally. He addresses both 12 different times. He addresses married, uh, single, divorced. He addresses all these issues. And he addresses men and he addresses women concurrently and equally. And as Paul's opinions rise to the surface in this letter, so does his true attitude toward the gentler sex. Toward women. If you want to answer the question as to whether or not Paul was a male chauvinist, and some in the church think he was, I direct you to Galatians 3.28 where he said, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Period. That's what Paul thought. That's what he believed. And so we see in this chapter, it's marvelous. He addresses men and he addresses women concurrently, interchangeably. He does not lift the one above the other. And by the way, when we get to 1 Corinthians 11, he will do the same thing again. Just as we guys are starting to think Paul's got us covered and yeah, preach it Paul, he turns the tables on us. We'll see that when we get there. But back to drips and charcoal. In marriage, 
in the most godly of marriages, things can become contentious. Why is that? Two reasons. The sin nature and the curse. The sin nature and the curse. If you are about to be married, if you are heading into marriage, if you are looking forward to marriage, please understand, the sin nature and the curse are right there with you. The sin nature is just our natural selfishness. It's part of who we are. Looking out for self instead of other. And I believe I said this last week, but marriage is one of the number one cures to selfishness. Or, or the marriage doesn't make it. Because it forces us to look at the other and say, okay, I'm setting my needs aside in favor of the other. I do it all the time. <laughs> she does it all the time. But the curse, the curse, don't forget the curse. Genesis 3.16, to the woman God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. That's not the worst of the curse. Well, Rick, you never had a baby. I get that. But that pain is momentary. That pain lasts the length of the labor and then is immediately forgotten by the woman, which I think is miraculous. No, the real pain, the more difficult part of the curse is this. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's a curse. It is. It's not the way it was supposed to be. It's not the way Adam and Eve were at the beginning in the garden. That is a result of the curse. Your desire is going to be for your husband. And by the way, that's not a sexual desire. That's a power desire. God says, Eve, you're going to want to rule. But he's going to rule. Because you ate of the fruit first. And ever since then, husbands and wives have been at loggerheads over different issues because we are fighting for position and power in the marriage. Even in the most godly marriage, it creeps in. It's the curse. Don't forget that in Christ Jesus, there is neither male nor female, all are one. And that's our hope. That's where the curse gets broken. That's why we invite Jesus into our marriages. And Paul is trying to do something here. He's trying to spare the people the additional challenges that come with marriage because, and get this, because there's a greater issue at stake. I told you 1 Corinthians 7 is not about marriage. So don't forget that as we read on verse 29. Paul says, But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. Not a nun, but none. Verse 30, And those who weep, as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice, as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy, as though they did not possess. And those who use the world, as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. Number six in our listing here. Paul is pointing the people at Corinth to unbound determination. Unbound determination. Note again what he says in this section. Three different things. In verse 26, he says, in view of the present distress. In verse 29, he says, the time has been shortened. In verse 31, he says, the form of this world is passing away. And you got to note this, in every single one of Paul's letters, in all of Paul's teaching, and at the very heartbeat of Paul's theology... His standard of living seems to be almost magnetically drawn heavenward. Paul is always looking up. 
Everything He teaches causes our eyes to look up, causes us to think forward, causes us to look to the future. Paul is unbound and determined to go home. And so what he's teaching here, that's why I say it's not about marriage. It's about getting ready to go home. And if marriage hinders that, you ought not be married, he would say. There's something more important here than our present comfort. It is our eternal condition. And this is always on Paul's radar. Unbound. He is not bound by the world. And he is determined to go home. Unbound to the planet. Determined for heaven. How about you? Can we honestly say we live that way? Oh no, I'm not bound to the things of this earth. What is in your life that's that's holding you back? That's tying you down? What are you bound to? I'm bound to my wife and my children. That's not a bad thing. I'm thankful for that. But I'll tell you what, Paul's right. I cannot be 100% all the time doing the service of the Lord. I have to care for my family. My ministry has to be home first. And then here. And then beyond that. I have that responsibility. It's a right responsibility. Husbands, it's your godly responsibility to be wife and children first. God first. Wife and children. But then ministry comes after that. Okay? And so there is a sense of responsibilities, things that bind us. Do you have a business that you're bound to and it takes all your attention and all your time and you're just your focus is all here and then Paul comes along and he says, look up. Are you determined to go home or are you determined to make the next big sale? Are you unbound? This is Paul's attitude. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day. I've probably quoted that verse a thousand times over the last decade. And then he says, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Do you love His appearing? Are you longing for His coming? That's unbound determination. And for Paul, it infuses all of his teaching. It's always ultimately comes, it comes back around to this issue of the future. I was thinking about how as a young man, how many things I had to look forward to. I looked forward to being engaged. You know, when Cheryl and I first started dating and started talking seriously about it, I thought, oh, engagement, that's, that's going to be great. And then we got engaged. Check. Now I look forward to being married. Even better. Because, you know, you know. Now. And then we got married. Check. And then we started talking about kids. Well, we talked about kids before we got married, but once we were married, it's like, okay, now we can think about this. And we talked about how long we wanted to put it off. We talked about timing. We talked about names. And I started to get excited and think, I'd like to have kids. I looked forward to that. And then the kids kind of all came one after another and I started looking forward to not having kids. And then we were going to have more kids. And honestly, when we made that decision, I looked forward to having more kids. And now I'm looking forward to not having kids again. No, but my point is this. You come to a place in life where you start realizing, I've done all the major things. I don't have much left to check off in terms of the big ones, you know. 
I gave my life to Jesus when I was a kid. You know, I, I, I went to college and did that thing. That was something I wanted to do. And, and marriage and children and all that. And now here I am, 51, and I'm going, grandkids. Okay, I'm, I'm looking forward to It's a boy, by the way. It's a boy. Yeah. If I had said it's a girl, I hope you would clap too. Whatever. Yeah, because it doesn't really matter. But yeah, so little Ricky's on the way, December 7th. And I look forward to that. I look forward to holding him. There's not a lot beyond that, honestly. I don't look forward to retirement. I don't want to retire. I want to be so old that when I come up here to teach, dust is like falling off. Tonight we'll cover one verse. What are you looking forward to? Paul was always looking forward to Jesus. His teachings are saturated with looking forward to Jesus. And brothers and sisters in Christ, you always have that to look forward to. That is glorious. And that is coming. And this train of thought, man, it runs through the teachings of Paul like a, a, diesel, a diesel locomotive. Just charging down the tracks. Ken LaHaye, author of the Left Behind series, left us behind a couple weeks ago. He passed away age 90. And I actually wonder if, if, if anyone would say, isn't it sad that he didn't last until the rapture? Well, sad for us, not for him. He gets to go up in the first crew. Those who have died in Christ go first, and we will meet with them in the air, and so we shall forever be with the Lord. But, but 1 Thessalonians four seventeen and 18 tells he he gets to go first now. So if you die before the rapture happens, you're in the first gang going up. Hallelujah. But Tim LaHaye, did, did he miss it? No. He lived with that heavenly longing. The whole Left Behind series came out of that heavenly longing, came out of his teaching through Revelation in, in the church in which he was connected. And that's the right attitude and it's the right thinking. Paul's attitude was one of heavenly longing. And, and so note this, back in the passage, he's not, when he says, those who have wives should be as though they had none, he's not saying, husbands, disregard your wives. No. That's wrong-headedness. He's not saying uh, that we should mute all emotion. You know, because because he says, and those who uh, he says, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. It almost sounds like a Greek call to stoicism. Don't weep, don't rejoice, and by all means, do not respond to anything your wife needs. <laughs> what is he saying? <laughs> We know he can't be saying no more rejoicing because in Philippians 4.4 4, he says rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. So he's not discounting these things. He is calling us to an unbound life. He's calling us to live beyond these things with an expectation that is greater than these things. He says the time has already been shortened. And that's a really interesting phrase. You know that's something only God can do. Shorten the time. Jesus says unless the days are cut short, no one would survive the tribulation. We know from the Scriptures that the tribulation at the end of the age is a seven-year period of time. It could go longer, but God said it at no more than seven years because if it was any longer, no one could, could handle it. Even those who become followers of His in those days would not be able to handle 
And so he cut the time short. Paul says the time has already been shortened. And that is a perfect uh, translation, by the way. Has already been shortened. What's he saying? Well, first of all, that phrase in the middle of all this, the time has already been shortened or has been shortened, gives an eschatological urgency to what Paul is saying here. Days are short. What used to feel like, you know, a 24-hour day that might have felt like 25 hours is more like 23 hours now. I mean, it's, it's shortening. Paul has, again, that end times sensibility, eschatology in his writing, that look to the future, that look to the end times, and that is very Jesus-like of Paul. For it was Jesus who said in Matthew 24, 42, Therefore be on the alert. You do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you also must be ready. Paul took Jesus at his word. Jesus said, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think. Well, that's what Paul's going for here. In fact, we're starting to approach Paul's real intention behind 1 Corinthians 7, and it is not distinctive teachings on marriage and divorce. He's talking about unbound determination. And again, this whole passage is much bigger than just a prescription for marriage, or singleness, or or virginity. It's what I would call the eschatology of devotion. The eschatology of devotion. That is a view of the end times that causes me to be more devoted to God than I would be otherwise. Now, someone might read this and say, okay, the time has been shortened, um, but didn't Paul write that 2,000 years ago? So where's the urgency in that? Pull back from history just for a moment with me. And take a look. For 4,000 years, God had been underwriting history with the promise of His coming. With the guarantee of His grace. And then Jesus came and listen, Gordon Fee says, The event of Christ has now compressed the time in such a way that the future has been brought forward so as to become clearly visible. Before Jesus came, it was all, it was kind of like me back before I met Cheryl. Someday I'm going to meet a girl and I'll get engaged and then I'll get married and perhaps I'll have some kids and then we'll venture off into life and all these things and I have all this stuff to look forward to. Well, then I married Cheryl and suddenly it all became very visible. Everything that I had hoped for and looked forward to growing up, now it's right before me. And so you could say, how many of you my age or older, 50 or older, feel like time has been compressed? And how many of you, the older you get, feel like it's getting shorter and shorter and shorter? Well, there's a dynamic there because the end is getting nearer. (laughs) I don't mean to your life, but suddenly it's like this funnel. We start life out here, but the further into life we get, the more we see that there is an end point. And the more aware of that end point we are, the more we have to deal with Either we're going home or we're scared out of our minds. By the way, that's where the world is. Scared to death of death. Not me. The eschatology of devotion. But but again, pull back from history. For 4,000 years, God proclaimed His coming, talked about His grace, began to develop an understanding, and then He came. 
And for the last 2,000 years, the end has been in sight. Clearly, visible to us. As if the time were compressed. It's simple division. 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham. 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus. 2,000 years from Jesus to right now. Which means that we are sitting at the very tail end of the final third of history. And if a day is as a thousand years, which the Bible tends to proclaim, Hosea wrote the following on behalf of Israel. Hosea 6 verse 2, He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. If a day is as a thousand years, and He will revive us after two days, the Jewish people say, it's been two thousand years since the fall of Jerusalem. Two thousand years since the destruction of the way of life that was understood. And here we stand, I believe, on the precipice. And if you can divide history into three parts, Adam to Abraham, Abraham to Jesus, Jesus to today, we're in the last part. The time has been shortened. Does that make sense to everybody? And so there is an urgency in Paul's words. He says back in Romans 13.11, Now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. And I don't mean to belabor the point except to ask how clearly visible is His coming to you. How much does the return of Jesus define and characterize your daily decisions and your life? Are you living with unbound determination? Verse 32. But Paul says, I want you to be free from concern. Free from concern is one word in the Greek. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. The one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. And again, that's not necessarily a big negative if you're married. It's just, it's true. You have, wives have a divided interest. You have your husband to care for. And that can be a big job. So your interests are divided. Husbands, you have your wife, your children to be concerned with. Paul says true things. Verse 34, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Free from concern. That word is amarimnos. The word marimnos in the Greek is concerned or worried or striving. A is the negative, so it negates that. Amarimnos is free from or not concerned. No worries, we might say. No worries. That's how I want you to be, Paul says. No worries. How much of your anxiety and your worry and your fretting comes from either marital strife or parental worry? I can tell you as a married man and as a father, most of the greater concerns of my life have to do with my wife and children more than this church and I love this church but if I had to list out all my concerns it starts at home and that's where I thought when I strive when I don't you know it's funny I don't worry about the bridge I don't y'all are fine God is working I see him at work among us doing things 
leading us forward, answering prayers. I, I see that. It's at home in my personal life that I start to fret. Same God is in my household. But I start to worry. And that's what Paul is, is saying here. How many of you fret over these things? There is a way to live amarimnos. A way to live with no worries, free from concern. And it's very simply, concern yourself with the Lord. And you will become more free from concern. Well, well how do I do that? Pray. Pray. Worship. Feed on the Word of God. Walk in the Spirit. You want to be free from worry? Free from concern, concern yourself with the Lord. And accept that your spouse, your children, your life, truly they're not your concern, they're His. I told you before about a missionary friend who made this comment before. It's not my problem. It's God's problem. I thought it was a little... Almost arrogant for him to say that. Well, that's not my problem. That's God's problem. He was right. My life is not my problem. My life is God's problem. He made me. So I'm His problem. He's got to deal with me. My worries, my fears, my threats, they're not my problems. They're His. My friend who is denying the Lord, it's not my problem. Because I have a God who loves Him more than I do. My child who is struggling with faith. It's not my problem. Because my God knows and is more concerned with him or with her than I am. My concerns? No, they're his concerns. I will concern myself with the Lord. And I will take these concerns to the Lord. And I will lay them at the feet of the Lord. And then when I stand up, I will walk away and leave them with the Lord. And be amarimnos. Without concern. You want to get free and become unbound as we were talking about? Then you give it to God. Psalm 37.7 Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in the way. Because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. When we studied Psalm 37 years ago in the barn... We did a whole teaching just on do not fret. And I think I had everybody repeating it over and over. And Cheryl went home and put stickers on our microwave that read do not fret. They're still there. Every morning when I'm making tea, I look up and go, oh yeah, do not fret. How do you not fret? You make your concerns His. Because He is concerned. Psalm 46.10, cease striving. Other versions read, be still and know that I am God, but the actual literal translation is better, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Yeah, but Hillary or Trump or where are we, where are we going and we're striving. And I will be exalted. You don't have to worry about where the presidency of the United States is going because guess what? I will be exalted, God says. That's a guarantee. That's coming. Don't strive. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take My yoke upon you. Learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest 
for your souls. I love that. Rest for your souls. That's your mind. That's where all the striving takes place. Come to me and I'll give you rest from that. In fact, He will offer to you the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. Rest. Verse 35. This I say, Paul writes, for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure, and here's number seven, the seventh thing on our list, undistracted devotion to the Lord. I love it. Undistracted devotion to the Lord. It's what Rachel prayed earlier. That we would not have distractions tonight. That we could have a razor sharp focus on the Lord. Eyes fixed on Him. And not just in this place. Undistracted devotion for Paul. It was always about clearing the plate and loosening up the schedule that a person might live that way with undistracted devotion to the Lord. And another verse I've shared with you hundreds of times, Galatians 1.10, one of my favorites. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. We're not about being man-pleasers, woman-pleasers. We're about being God-pleasers. And the more we seek to please God, the more our devotion is undistracted. And that is why singleness is a Pauline preference. That's why Paul actually, by his own opinion, says, look, if you're single, and I'm not, I'm not preaching this, I'm not saying you should do this or have to be this way, but Paul did. Paul said very clearly, I wish that you were like me. I wish you were single and celibate. Paul says, that's a way to live. Boy, our culture doesn't get that at all. Single and celibate. That's just weird in America 2016. But to Paul, no. I wish you were like I am. And Paul would know. Especially if he had been married before, he would know what it was like to be married and what it was like to be single. What about the loneliness, Rick? I don't doubt that on occasion Paul felt lonely. In fact, I think we see it in his letters, especially to, to Timothy, the second, second letter to Timothy. We hear loneliness kind of coming out in the pages. But he still would say, the best way to live. It is the best way to live with undistracted devotion. And again, if you're married, that's a good thing. You know, without drips and charcoal, it's a good thing. However... Your your interests are of necessity divided. So we need to constantly be giving those interests, those worries, those frets and concerns over to God. But if you're in a place of singleness, that can be a good thing. You may be single just in this season. Instead of striving for the next season, Paul would say, embrace your celibacy. Embrace the fact that you have the freedom right now not to be worried about what she thinks or what he thinks, but only what God thinks. That you can be undistracted. And by the way, speaking of virginity and celibacy and singleness, listen to how John the Apostle describes the 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will rise in the tribulation, who will be at work in that seven-year period. Revelation 14.4 These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. 
These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. There's your undistracted devotion. And I mention them because this is 144,000 evangelists who know time is running out. You think the time has been shortened for us? How about if I told you right now, oh, Israel just signed a covenant with Antichrist, we have seven years. From right now, we have seven years and we know it and no more. How short do you think the days would feel then? And so for the 144,000 called evangelists, Read about him in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 14 says, and by the way, the entire time of their calling, they are chaste. They are celibate. They are virgins. And all they do is follow the Lamb wherever He goes. It's a beautiful picture of how someone who is unbound and determined to go to heaven and undistracted and devoted to God is chaste. And again, when we live in a culture that we live in that is so sexually saturated, and, oh, we gotta, we gotta be in this position to have that relationship and that experience, and it's all physical and it's all the body and all of this. And Paul writes, American culture, you're missing something. Because there is a beauty and a holiness in chaste virginity. Young people who are virgins, Hold on to it as long as possible. And praise the Lord that you are a virgin. That's a good thing. And God honors it. And by the way, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are now children of God. It has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And note this, everyone who has this hope fixed on Him that is, the hope of His coming, purifies Himself just as He is pure. There's a, 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 a chasteness about keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, whatever your status is in life. Whatever your position is right now, eyes fixed on Jesus has a purifying effect. And whether you're a virgin or married or uh, divorced or whatever the position of life that you find yourself in right now, stay pure. Well, how can I stay pure? Because, you know, last year I was... Last year doesn't matter. Last year is of no account. Yesterday is gone forever. Your call right now is to stay pure from this day forward in an honoring relationship with Jesus. Verse 36. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes, he does not sin, let her marry. What? This is a confusing two or three verses. Now the NASB translators, they add the word daughter, which is not there. It's just the word parthenos, it's just virgin. They add in daughter because they, they think that, that this is advice from Paul to the father of a virgin daughter. It might be, but the language is a little bit unclear. Again, first of all, the word daughter is not in the original Greek. Secondly, the pronouns that you see there, she and her, uh, could also be he and him. Because in the Greek it could go either way. They're neither masculine nor feminine, they're just pronouns. So she, her could be he, him, which would then change the whole thing. 
And translators are further uncertain of the, the subject. Who is Paul talking about? And there are three options. Option number one. He may be giving advice to a father regarding the father's betrothed daughter. He may be giving advice to a maiden who is betrothed. Or he may be giving advice to a man who is betrothed. And talking about the virgin as the woman that he's betrothed to. So it's not a father-daughter thing. It's actually a a, a man and, and woman thing. And then he goes on to say here that... If it must be so, let him do as he wishes. He does not sin. Let him let her marry if he has passed his youth or passed her youth. Note that there. That's a Greek word that for men means if you're in the prime of life or for a woman it means if you're coming of age, if you're of marriageable age. So he may be talking to a woman. In either case... Paul is referring to a situation related to someone who is of marriageable age. And verse 37 reveals to us that this is specific and personal. So watch this. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin, you could say to keep his own virginity, or to keep his own betrothed, Girlfriend, a virgin, or to keep his daughter a virgin. I mean, it could go any of the three ways. He will do well. Verse 38. So then both he who gives his own virgin in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. Gordon Fee calls this Paul's verbal tour de force. Because Paul refers to this particular person, be it a dad, be it the daughter, be it a woman, or be it a man, he refers to this person four times, he refers to this person's will. Four times. He who stands firm in his heart, number one. Number two, being under no constraint or compulsion. Thirdly, has authority over his own will, and then fourthly, has decided this in his own heart. Theologically, if we're all predestined, how can any of those work? If we have no free will, what is Paul even talking about? Four times he appeals to the will of the person saying, whether it's a father or a young woman, or a young man, that person must be personally convicted. You've got to make a decision of your will. Okay, so, so what does all this really mean? It means that people can pressure you to do all kinds of things in the name of religion. But unless you have revelation yourself, it just becomes forced. That's the problem of legalism in the church. It's people coming to you and saying, well, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse such and such, the only way that you can get a divorce and be uh, legitimate in the church is such and such. Okay? You need to get that from God. And you need to understand by revelation of the Spirit what God is calling you to do. If you're single, and we've been talking a lot about singleness, right? You need to have a personal conviction in your heart that that's what God wants you to do and you find peace in it because that's been revealed to you. You don't go home and go, well, Pastor Rich said I should become single, so doggone it, I guess I will. (laughs) That's compulsory. 
That's legalism, and that's not what Paul is about. It's much bigger than any of that. He doesn't want anybody to be forced. It's about your will. It's about your will. James says, therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does it not to him, it is sin. That means that there are some things you could do that violate your conscience that would be sin, but if I did the exact same thing, it would not be sin because it doesn't violate my conscience. And he'll get into that in chapter 8 concerning things sacrificed to idols. Some could eat meat that came from an idolatrous sacrifice and it was not sin because it's not a problem. Others it would be sin because for them, conscience-wise, it was a problem. You've got to determine. Decide these things. Jesus said in John 15.22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now, they have no excuse for their sin. Once you know better... You've got to act on that. You have a free will. And so what Paul is saying to this father, to this young woman, to this young man, whichever it is, what Paul is saying is, you have a will. You need to use it. And don't be listening to those church leaders who are trying to force you into celibacy if that's not where your heart is. And as Paul has said through the whole rest of the chapter, marriage is a good thing. That's good. That's fine. If that's where you're led and that's what you want to do, that is, that's a God-blessed arrangement. Picture of Christ in the church, right? So it's good. You've got to decide. You've got to have a will in the matter. Don't lockstep. Lockstepping is never good. Don't follow the religious prescription of a church leader unless you understand this is biblically sound and spiritually revealed. Verse 39 Paul concludes this section saying a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And that's important. If you're going to get married a second time because you've lost your husband, let it be in the Lord. Be sure it's in the Lord. And then he says in verse 40, but in my opinion, here comes Paul's opinion again, she's happier if she remains as she is. (laughs) She's actually happier. Why go back in? At the end of this, Paul both agrees and disagrees with the Corinthians regarding celibacy. He agrees with them that celibacy can be a good thing. But he disagrees with them in that they are demanding it as a moralistic obligation. And he says, no, it's not. I disagree. They see it from a legalistic perspective, and Paul sees it from a devotional, eschatological perspective, and the difference is huge. If my decisions as a follower of Jesus are based on legalistic tradition, it's always going to be hard. And it's also going to always be compulsory. I'm going to feel forced. But if my will, my choices, my decisions are based on the eschatological perspective that Jesus could be here any moment, and I want to live a life devoted to Him, unbound and undistracted, guess what? I am free. I will live free. I will not feel forced. I am liberated both from sin and from legalistic constraints of religion. And in verse 40, he ends up saying, in my opinion, she's happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. 
Paul just, man, he just lays it down. Where does Paul's opinion come from? The Spirit of God. I have an opinion in the matter. And I have the Spirit of God. So what I'm sharing with you, though it is my opinion, is also because I, I think this is what the Spirit is saying. I'm getting some spiritual revelation here. And I love this in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul is very careful not to lay down doctrinal requirements. But he doesn't lighten up on the weight of his opinion. Chapter and verse, people will sometimes cry. Show me where it is in Scripture. But you know what? I think we also have the Spirit of God. And the more you know God's Word, the more you will discern the right and the wrong of everyday life, even if you can't find it in Scripture. And Paul offers both here. 2 Corinthians 3.16 and 17 says, Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And there are those followers of Jesus who are not in the Spirit, who don't understand the Spirit, or who even reject the Spirit. And they're bound up in legalism. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, we are free. So the question I want to leave with you tonight is do people see liberty in your marriage? Oh, not the kind of liberty that the world sees. Oh yeah, we've got an open marriage. That's just stupid. (laughs) But do people see the freedom of the Spirit in your marriage? In your singleness, do they see liberty? In your schedule, in your lifestyle, freedom unbound and undistracted. Because that's how Jesus was in this world. Marriage is the picture of Jesus Christ and His church. But when Jesus came to save, He remained single all the way to Calvary. Jesus never got married. Dan Brown was wrong. (laughs) The Da Vinci Code, there was no code. By the way, that was just the stupidest book I think I ever read. Oh, because Da Vinci had a code. Well, yeah, was Da Vinci one of the apostles? Well, he painted their picture. (laughs) Jesus remained single. Why? Because he was unbound and undistracted. He was absolutely devoted to the Father. That's what mattered to Jesus. So for 33 years of his life until they crucified him, Jesus never married. He remained single and celibate. Why? Because he knew his time was short.